So just a clarification on the dinner, you're invited if you have nowhere to go. And if you'd like to bring something, you can bring something. But that's why it's important you sign up so we know who's coming <laughs> for Thanksgiving Day. So, uh, But you can turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we just finished the book of 1 Corinthians. And... Um, so we're going to be doing a couple topical messages through Thanksgiving and Christmas. I don't know where we're going to go next, but uh, pray as the Lord leads us and guides us which book we'll tackle next. So. But this morning we want to talk about a little bit about Thanksgiving. Thankful before Thanksgiving is the title of the message. And uh, I heard a couple, well... Some of it's humor, some of it's just plain stupid, but I needed an opener, so I'm just going to share it with you. (laughs) Signs that you ate too much for Thanksgiving. These are signs that you ate too much for Thanksgiving. The doctor tells you your weight would be perfect for a man of 17 feet. You are responsible for a slight but measurable shift in the Earth's axis. That's scary. Paramedics, Paramedics bring the jaws of life to pry you out of your easy boy recliner. <laughs> that sounds like me. Um, the, the potato you use, the potatoes you use to set off, the potatoes you use for your mashed potatoes set off another famine in Ireland. I don't know what that means. You receive a sumo wrestler application in your email. <laughs> you set off three earthquake simographs. On your morning jog, Friday morning. Pricking your finger for your cholesterol screening only yields gravy. (laughs) Got a problem there. You consider gluttony your patriotic. Or representatives from the Butterball Hall of Fame called you twice. You know, when it comes to Thanksgiving, we love to eat, do we not? It's food, 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 and more food. And... And uh, one statistic says that, you know, people are always counting calories, right? Well, one statistic says that even before you eat your, any of your Thanksgiving dinner, about 10% of your calories are already wasted because you've eaten so much before the dinner on whatever you're tasting or whatever. And uh, it's just kind of an important thing to re- remind ourselves. But we're so accustomed to traditional celebrating thanksgiving in our country and and um really as far as a traditional thanksgiving i think it's canada and the united states are the only real countries that celebrate a holiday like this now other ones have come up with thanksgiving holidays that have to do with other things but as far as an observance like we observe as far as the founding of our country and things like that it's basically uh, Thanksgiving is uh, celebrated by the u.s and canada canada celebrates thanksgiving on the second monday in october I don't know why, but they do. Um, and so it's easy sometimes when you're in America to forget that, you know, celebrating Thanksgiving doesn't necessarily reach across borders into other countries. Um, I heard my, sis- my wife talking to her sister in Trinidad this past week on the phone, just overheard part of the conversation, and I don't even know if I'm getting it right, but I'll share it with you. Um, she was saying, oh, yeah, well, we have a holiday, and she was talking a little bit about Thanksgiving. And uh, what we do on Thanksgiving and things like that. And I think that it's, it's important. And, you know, it's, it's, it was underscored that a teacher uh, eager uh, 
young school teacher in Texas decided that they wanted to encourage their fourth grade students to go home. And the assignment was this, explore how Thanksgiving is celebrated in other countries. Unfortunately, (laughs) that classroom assignment left the children and the parents mildly perplexed because there wasn't a whole lot out there on that. Um, But the teacher had the right idea, I think. And there's no reason to limit our Thanksgiving, I think, to one day of the year or even one corner of the world. I mean, anyone who knows Scripture, anyone who's looked through Scripture, the word thanks or giving thanksgiving is all over the place. Um, And we did not invent the idea of giving thanks as a country. Um, There's a certain idea throughout the Scripture of holding a festival to praise and to worship God in his blessings, for his blessings. Israel even, uh, that, that country, have a national calendar contained of great feasts that are geared to celebrate the harvest and to, and to commemorate events such as God's deliverance from the nation of Egypt and other things. And we see it on every page of Scripture. And the people observe the weekly Sabbath. Why? For worshiping God and remembering his provision to give thanks. And so as we come upon Thanksgiving, you know, even the psalmist there's many psalms that deal with this. I'll just read a few here in the introduction. Psalm 717, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Or Psalm 28:7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Psalm 50, verse 14, sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Or Psalm 69, 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 95, verses 1 to 3. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Psalm 107, 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, 1 to 4. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks To the God of gods, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. But this morning we want to turn our hearts to the New Testament, a letter penned by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, the Philippians. And uh, if you know anything about Philippians, it's a book of joy. It talks about having joy in your Christian life. I think more Christians need to read on a steady diet of the book of Philippians so they're not walking around with their head down and ashes on their head. We're called to be a wonderful testimony of the love and the forgiveness that we've found in Christ. And we do that sometimes even by our, our demeanor, how we, how we appear to others. We should have a genuine joy that the Lord has provided. So I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm just going to read two verses here. And uh, 
Well, start in verse... Let, start in verse uh, 4, actually. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, look at what it says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that you bless this word to our hearts and our minds. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this time of the year, a lot of people grow anxious. A lot of people grow um, unsettled. You have holiday upon holiday. Uh, Some of that unsettlement may come from being around relatives, things like that, that you're normally not around. I don't know. But there's a lot of people that really begin to deal with a lot of anxiety. Just prior, right after Halloween and just prior to Thanksgiving, and it starts to build and it starts to build. And there's a lot of things that we could worry about, but it creeps in and it takes over and it begins gnawing away at us. And I'll be the first one to admit, you know, I'm, I, am, I am one sometimes to be anxious about things. I remember when the, the kids, before they were coming, before they were here, you know, my wife's like, why are you so anxious? Well, you know, I just want everything to go well. You know, it's, it's, you, you grow anxious, and your, your peace seems to be fleeting. Someone described anxiety as a thin stream of fear trickling through your mind, and if encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. You know, sometimes we, we forget that, that we're commanded not to be anxious, Especially as believers. And we often hear phrases like people being stressed out or having a panic attack. I remember I went through, I don't know, it seemed like a couple months at a certain point in my ministry. Every time I got up to preach, I mean, my heart was ready to jump out of my chest. Break out in a cold sweat. I didn't know what was going on. Went and got checked out. Everything looks fine. I thought, wow, what is this? And I think we have to be aware of what our body's telling us. A lot of times we feel anxious this time of year over finances. You know, will you get that bonus at the end of the year? How are you going to pay your monthly bills? Do you have enough for Christmas gifts? What if you lose your job? Um, Maybe you have medical issues and you're wondering, how am I going to pay for this? What if... Well, I mean, that's not even really a question. What if the economy fails, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, an, it's in a world of hurt. Thank you very much. But we feel anxious about these things. These things bother us. And then you turn to your own health and you realize, wow, you're not the man or the woman you, you once were. And you start forgetting things. And you start thinking, wow, why can't I remember people's names? Why can't I remember this? And, you know, why is the cell phone in the refrigerator? That's not good. You know, I mean, things like that happen. That's not a good thing. (laughs) Then you think, what what if I had a tragic accident, I was disabled or got cancer or got Alzheimer's or, I mean, you know, when you're around people that deal with these things, you're thinking you, you can't help but put yourself in their position and say, well, how would I be like? 
if tomorrow I was restricted to a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Those kind of things can really gnaw at you. And you know what? I mean, if you're younger, you say, well, I don't have those problems. You may be worrying about your own parents. Maybe you're not worrying about your health, but you're worrying about your parents' health. So anxiety has a way of creeping into our lives. We're anxious as parents about our children. Will they turn out okay? Will they avoid sex? Will they avoid sexual immorality, I should say? Would they avoid drugs? Um, will they be safe in this crazy world we live in? Will they be able to complete, go to college and complete and get a half-decent job? What's it going to look like when they're ready to go into the workforce? Who are they going to marry? All these things play into our anxieties. And the list goes on and on, and you probably have a lot of things right now. I don't mean to you know, make you anxious by bringing all this up, by the way. There is an answer to this, and that's what we want to look at. But sometimes we can't even identify any reason why we're feeling anxious. There's, there's no good reason. Um, but it's there, and it's, it nags away at us hour after hour. And if you don't deal with it properly, it causes all kinds of health problems. I mean, physical health problems. Set aside the spiritual for a second, just the physical. And and Jesus himself in John 14, 27 said, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. He's talking to his followers here. Not as the world gives. So there is a peace that the world gives that's not the kind of peace that Jesus gives. He says, do I give to you? Let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Has the idea of anxiety there. He spoke those comforting words to his followers on one of the most difficult nights in his earthly life. You know, Jesus wasn't, you know, sitting in a bed of roses here. Uh, this was a very difficult night on earth for him, the night before his crucifixion. He knew what was going to happen. He knew it was coming. And yet he says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Really, Jesus, you have peace? And you know what they're going to do to you tomorrow? Seven times in the New Testament, our God is called either the God or the Lord of peace. And if you know him here today, you know what kind of peace I'm talking about. You understand what that means, to have that deep-seated peace in your heart that sometimes can't be explained. That peace can be a constant experience for every Christian, for everyone who's trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, even in the midst of your trials. And Paul, here in in this text... Just to remind you, he's not home in front of the TV, watch, relaxing in his easy boy. He's in prison. He's in prison. And to experience God's peace instead of anxiety, we need to pray with thankfulness about every concern. And I just want to share briefly with you here this morning three basically key words here we see. We see anxiousness, we see prayer, and we see peace. Being anxious is the problem we are told to put off. He says, put off anxiousness. That has no place in a Christian's life. But then he says, prayer is something that we're told to do. We're told to practice, 
to be in prayer. And then this peace that he talks about is really the, the product that we are promised by God when we follow his prescription here for anxiety. So the first thing in your outline there, it says we must put off anxiety, which is sin. It says there in the text, be anxious for what? For nothing. Well, you don't know what I've been through. It doesn't matter. I don't have to know. God knows. And this is God's word. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear that anxiety comes from a lack of faith. And really, a wrong focus on things. You're focusing on the things of the world instead of focusing on the kingdom of God. He points out in Matthew 6. And we use the excuse, well, you know, well, we're only human. <laughs> Anybody would feel anxious in this situation. But you know what? That doesn't overcome the anxiety. Why? Because you're unwilling to confess it. <laughs> you're unwilling to confess it. You're just making excuses for it. We have to confess it as sin. And the sin is basically the sin of not believing God. That God will hold you fast. That God will care for you. That God is sovereign over all things in life. We need to ask him, the faith, to continue to trust and believe in him. And to continue to seek first, what? His kingdom and his righteousness. Not our own agenda. He wants Christians to have God's joy in every situation, not just so that we're going to be happy, happy people, but so that we can be an effective witness for Christ. I mean, who wants to hear from a Christian who's, well, I'm a Christian, you know, yeah, yeah, you need to come to Christ. Why would I? Why would I want that? You know, I want to hear that, you know what, yeah, Christ has helped, helped me through some difficult times and he's given me a joy that I don't even understand. Praise the Lord, you know, and you, you got some life to you. You're not some dead saint that looks like they're one step away from the grave. You realize that, no, God has a purpose for me. Why? Because I'm breathing. You know, some of the older folks in our church just amaze me. I mean, because they don't stop. They just don't stop. They continue. To serve. They continue to do the hard things. And sometimes, you know, I do some hard things and, you know, my body aches or whatever and I complain. And I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of rattled into, you know, the reality of, wait a minute. Compared to them, I'm not even old. What am I whining about? They're willing to serve the Lord day in and day out. With nobody patting them on the back or the head saying, good job. Why? Because they understand there's a purpose in their living. I've been in nursing homes and rest homes where people have a purpose in their living. And they're excited to see you when you go and you visit them. Before COVID, we used to do a, a worship service in one of the nursing homes over on Woodside. And, you know, sometimes there'd be 10 people, sometimes there'd be two. But every time, man, the people that were there, what are we going to sing today? Wow, we're excited. What are you going to do? They were excited. And here they are in their walkers and their wheelchairs. We need to be reminded that joy is to be something that's, that's evident in our life. 
You have to put off anxiety because that's a joy killer. He wants us to have joy in every situation. Look at what Philippians 2, 14 to 18 says. He says, do all things, do everything without grumbling or disputing. That doesn't say, you know, the things you don't do, you you can grumble about. No, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless. And innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I mean, if that's not the generation we're living in right now, the society, if you don't, if you look around and you don't think society's crooked and twisted, you're blind. But he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's why Jesus. When he saves us, he doesn't just push the button and we eject to heaven. I mean, I'd kind of like that. It'd be a lot easier than sticking around down here trying to clean up this mess with the Lord's help. But you know what? He doesn't do that. Why? For that very reason. He wants us to shine as lights in a lost and dying world. When people see us, they should see hope. They should see forgiveness. They should see joy in our lives. They shouldn't see people who are so caught up with the world that, that it, they can't even tell the difference. And how do you see that in people? You see by what they read. You see by you know, who they hang around with. You see by what kind of music they listen to. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm being poured out, Paul says, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. He was in prison. And he's saying, hey, you know what? This is what God has for me. Embrace it. Why? Because he was seeking first the kingdom of God. He wasn't seeking his happiness If a non-Christian sees you as a believer weighed down with anxiety and care and worry, they're not going to be asking you how they can have the life that you have. They're going to say, yeah, look at that person's religion. It doesn't do any good for them. Because anxiety and joy, my friends, are mutually exclusive. They're complete opposites. So for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ, it's imperative. It's so important that we learn to experience the peace of God. And it's a moment-by-moment thing. I mean, I I don't just relax in the cloud of peace all 24-7. Just ask my family. You know, usually something happens in our household. It's kind of like, oh, how's he going to (laughs) react? You know, what's going to happen today? Is he going to fly off the handle? You know, that's just being real, right? You got to commit that to the Lord, and you, you know you should have a godly response to things. Well, sometimes my responses aren't too godly. You have to confess it as sin and move on. But He wants us, especially when we face trials, to have that to experience that peace of God that far outweighs our understanding. It means when it comes to the matter of dealing with our anxiety, we must at the outset confront our our motives. And why do we want God's peace? What's, what's the reason for it? A reason for wanting God, wanting to be free from anxiety is so that we can live a peaceful, pleasant, 
self-willed, self-centered life, then that's wrong. That's the wrong focus. I mean, there are many people who come to Christ because they're anxious and because they want the, the peace that he offers. But if they don't confront the fact that they're living to please themselves rather than God, they have an issue. And so what do they do? They simply settle into their self-centered life where they use God for their own peace and comfort. That's not being obedient to the gospel. Mark 8.35, Jesus said this, whoever wishes to save his life shall what? Shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. That's so important. What's the motivation? The peace that Christ offers is a byproduct of of really allowing and, and, and acknowledging Christ as Lord and living for him and not yourself. We have a lot of people who in our world today are people pleasers. All they're about is just pleasing people. If, if people are happy, then they're happy. It doesn't matter if God's happy because they don't consider God a people. Because you can't see God. And so they just figure, well, whatever. You know, as long as everybody's happy with me, then I guess it's fine. No. Matter of fact, the scripture says if everybody's speaking well of you all the time, you might have a problem. You remember the parable of the sower? Jesus warned that the seed which fall among the thorns represents those who have heard the gospel. And as they go on their way, they are choked with what? It says with worries and riches, and pleasures of this life. And what's the result? It says they bring no fruit to maturity. God can't work out his plan in their life because they're so concerned with themselves. That's why from the very onset, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, great. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. What's that mean? You don't do what you want to do when you want to do it. That's what that means. You're more concerned with what God wants you to do and when he wants you to do it and what he wants you to do. Deny yourself daily and then what? If that's not hard enough, take up your cross and then you can follow me. An instrument of death, not some piece of gold jewelry you hang around your your neck or you have tattooed on your forearm. It's talking about an instrument of death. You have to die to yourself. Then, he said, then you can follow me. That's what it takes. There's a cost involved. Well, he also, it's important that we, when we talk about worry, it's a noun related to the, the same verb as being anxious. Um, the scary thing about Jesus' words is this, is you understand this parable in Mark. Um, only one group is really saved out of the groups he's talking about. And it's those who bring about the fourth, fourth the fruit of, of perseverance. Those who profess to believe, but then go out and get choked out by worries, riches and pleasures, have never taken their self off their throne. They, they simply added Jesus to their life. They thought, okay, well, this looks like a good deal. I think I'll just bring Jesus into my life the way this and just continue. No. 
That won't work. They never really put Jesus on the throne of their own life. They're deceived into thinking that they're Christians, but the truth is they are just living with the same focus that the world has. It's just cloaked in the religion of Christianity. And they're doing it for the simple reason of personal pleasure and peace. In relation to Philippians 4, 6, this means that what we have here is, is not just a simple formula. You know, if you're anxious, pray, it works, you know, that kind of an attitude. Rather, it means if you're anxious, examine either your lack of faith, that's what he's saying, in the living God. If you're anxious in your life, maybe you have a lack of faith in the living God who's promised to supply the basic needs of his children. Or examine your focus. Whether you're living for Christ or whether you're living for yourself and your own kingdom. See, whatever the root cause may be of anxiety, it's a sin. Bottom line, it's a sin. And it has to be confessed just like any other sin and put off. But Paul here is not encouraging a careless, carefree, irresponsible attitude toward people and problems. We all have issues in our lives. We all are dealt with problems. I mean, I've seen a lot of Christians swing from anxiety to either apathy or inaction. They go, I'm not going to worry about anything, so I'm just not going to do anything. (laughs) Well, that's not the answer either. Um. We should care deeply about people. We should care deeply about people's problems. We should care deeply about our own problems. And we should be working hard to solve and resolve those problems with the Lord's guidance. I mean, we're all members of the same body. We have a mutual concern for one another, 1 Corinthians 12 taught us when we went through there. And Paul mentions the concerns that he bears daily for all the churches in 2 Corinthians 11. He tells even the Philippians that Timothy is genuinely concerned for for their welfare. Each of those verses, the word concern is the same Greek word for being anxious. It's the same, same word. But it's not a sinful anxiety, but a proper concern. You know, we shouldn't just have the attitude, well, just let go and let God, whatever, you know, that's wrong. That's not right either. That's an apathetic, apathetic attitude. It's possible to be concerned about your future welfare to the extent that we take responsibility to plan and to save for future needs. We're supposed to do that. But, but proper concern turns into sinful anxiety when we lack faith in God's role as as our sovereign Lord and as our provider. Our care is in his hands. And when we put ourselves at the center instead of God and his kingdom and his righteousness, that's where this anxiety turns into sin. So the first step in dealing with anxiety is to examine whether it's due to lack of faith or a wrong focus on self. And if it is, then just confess it. Confess it to the Lord as sin and ask God to help you to trust him more each and every day and yield to him. Secondly, we must practice prayer with thanksgiving or thankfulness about every concern. 
he mentions four Greek words for prayer here, which overlap in meaning, and yet we need to kind of distinguish between them. He mentions prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. Prayer is simply a general word for prayer. Prayer is communicating with God, just like we're communicating right now. Just can't see God. So it's communication of faith. But it says that he hears our prayers. It's always used with reference to God. And it always has the nuance of reverence. Prayer does. It's not like, hey, buddy, how you doing up there? You know, that's, that's, that's irreverent. When Paul says that he wants to make our request known to God, the, the, the Greek word here means face to face with God. To come directly before him. I mean, isn't that a wonderful blessing that you have the opportunity to go directly to God, the one who created you, the one who loved you, the one who saved you? You don't have to go through some rigmarole. You know, I was raised in a church where you got to do all this stuff, even to talk to the priest, you know, almost. And they pictured themselves as the mediator between man and God. Well, the Bible says there's only one mediator between man and God. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't need a priest. We don't need a pastor to to go and and find our avenue to God. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, God has already provided that way. He says we can approach him boldly before his throne of grace. And boldly doesn't mean irreverently. But it means just that, boldly, having confidence that he hears us. Because our God is a holy God. Let us never forget that. But he welcomes us into his presence as a father welcomes his children. I mean, that's a wonderful picture. God invites us to draw near with with confidence, the throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that. But we must remember that It is to the throne of the universe, to the the sovereign, eternal God that we are coming. We must examine our own hearts. We must confess and forsake our sin when we come to God. Even in prayer. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. But we also have the assurance that if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and guess what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What a wonderful blessing that is. Did you ever have a time where you're just confessing sin and you think, wow, I wonder if I'm leaving something out. Well, that's the end of that verse, right? And all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. That it's covered. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse us from all of our sin, past, present, future. But the believer is told to come directly to God in prayer. God provided Christ as our mediator. Christ is our high priest. The Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer prompts us, Romans 8 tells us, and moves us the way we should pray, interceding for us, even when we don't know how to pray. 
So prayer is a personal drawing near to the triune God. We shouldn't be praying to Mary. We shouldn't be praying to any of these other saints that they come up with. That's, that's sin. We pray to God and God alone. Pray to Christ. You don't need to go through a priest. Secondly, he talks about supplications here. And this word gives prominence to the sense of need and also looks at specific requests. Some people say, well, why pray since God already knows what we need? Why would, why would you have to even do anything? John Calvin had some profound and practical words on prayer. He points out that whatever we need and lack is to be found in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Father willed all the fullness of his bounty to abide. It is through prayer, he says, that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. See, prayer is not so much for the sake of God knowing what we want or what we need. He already knows it. Prayer is not for for God's sake, but it's for our sake. It's to show our total dependence, our total need of God himself. Think about it. When do you pray? If you're like any other normal Christian, you pray when you have a need. Um, You pray when you, you know, have an exam coming up that you haven't studied for. You pray when you have that that test that came back from the doctor that you didn't expect. You, You pray when you find yourself in a hard circumstance. Why? Because you realize there's nowhere else to go to. But see, that should be our attitude 24-7. None of us are there yet, but that's what we should be working toward. It casts our dependence on him so that we'll seek, we'll love, we'll serve him while we become accustomed to every need to flee to him as a a sacred anchor. It also purifies our desires, prayer does, because it helps us reflect on why are we asking for these things. It prepares us to receive thankfully what he bountifully provides, being reminded that it comes from his hand. It helps us to meditate on his kindness as we delight in what he's given to us. It confirms in our own hearts our own weakness (laughs) and God's great providence and faithfulness in meeting our needs. So what does this mean? This means that our supplication must be in line with God's will and his purpose. In the Lord's Prayer, we learn that the first focus of our prayer should be what? God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then our personal needs are secondary. We also mentions here Thanksgiving. When you're anxious, presumably when you're in a situation that gives you some anxiety, at such times, thankfulness doesn't come naturally. Would you agree? Gee, thank you, Lord. I just got in this big wreck on the freeway. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. No. It's not automatic thankfulness. Nor is it spontaneous. You have to do it deliberately by faith. That's what we're called to do. Thanksgiving in time of trials reflects three things. Remember 
remembrance of God's supply in the past. It's wonderful to sit down and realize, wow, remember that month we had more money going to bills than we had in our checking account? And yet God provided somehow? You think back over the faithfulness that that God has had in your own life and how he's provided right up to that point. He's been with you through every trial, no matter what it's been. The easy ones, the hard ones, he's there. He never abandons you. He never forsakes you. Even if we face persecution or death for his sake, he's there with us completely. God's supply in the past is very important to remember, but also remember submission to God's sovereignty in the present. When we thank God in the midst of a crisis or trial, it's really saying, Lord, you know what? I don't understand why you allowed this to happen. I don't understand why this is happening or, or you know, why you're allowing this to happen in my life. But you know what? I'm going to submit to your sovereign purpose in this situation. I trust that you know what you're doing, God. I've trusted you with my salvation. I surely can trust you with this silly little trial or this serious trial that's come my way. Because you're doing and you're working for my good. You're doing it together for our good. We're not just to thank God when we feel like it. But we're also to thank God when we don't feel like it. First Thessalonians 5.18. Well, remember God's supply in the past. Submit to God's sovereignty in the present. Trust in God's sufficiency for the future. A thankful heart rests upon an all-sufficient God. Knowing that even though we don't see how it's going to play out. We know that God is sufficient to meet our needs. He will meet our every need as we cast ourselves on him. Now notice I said needs. I didn't say wants. Because sometimes our wants are not our needs. Um, I mean, you remember the story in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Jeremiah was shut up in, in prison. Nebuchadnezzar was warring with Jerusalem, which was about to fall. And in that situation, the Lord told Jeremiah to do something that everyone would have thought was totally bonkers. Like, why would he tell him to do this? To buy a field from his uncle. Anybody knows you don't sink money into real estate when a country is about to fall to a foreign power. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. But God wanted to show his people, Psalm, or Jeremiah 32, 15, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And Jeremiah prays, Ah, Lord God, we sing that song, right? Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. What's to say? Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah was trusting in God's sufficiency for the future. I remember when 
you know, just the history of this ministry. I mean, we've been through, Ken and I have been through some very difficult times together. And there were times when we just had to simply cry out to the Lord and ask him to help us, to trust him more. Well, we also see requests here. This word overlaps kind of with thanks, with supplications. But um, it emphasizes specific, definitive nature of our petitions to the Lord. Um, A lot of times, you know, I've heard children pray this prayer before they go to bed, you know. Lord, thank you for a nice day. Bless mommy and daddy and and, and bless my sister and my brother. And and God, just bless the whole wide world. Amen. (laughs) That's a very gentle prayer. Right? I mean, not that it's not heartfelt, not that it's not, but I'm just saying, you know, we, we should have a little more requests than just bless the whole wide world. Right? And this is what this is, is speaking about. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. He goes on to illustrate the point by saying that if a, a boy asks his father for a loaf of bread, guess what? His dad's not going to just throw him a stone. How cruel would that be? Here, kid, munch on this. Break some teeth. If he asked for a fish to eat, the dad wouldn't give him a snake. I mean, some people eat snake, but I'm not really interested in eating snake. I'd much rather eat fish. Especially if your dad just throws a live snake at you. I mean, I wouldn't stick around for that one. And then Jesus concludes, he says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? The problem is we're so independent, a lot of times we don't even ask God. We don't even ask God. One commentator says, yeah, you know what? Um, when you get to heaven, you're going to see this, this room with all this stuff in it. And you're going to say, what's that? That's all the stuff I wanted to give you. But you never asked. (laughs) Oh, shucks. Right? I mean, you're still in heaven, but still, I mean, that would be a bummer. You don't want to end up there. Ask the Father. And if it's for your good, he'll give it to you. What a wonderful promise that is. Sometimes we fail to ask God because we think maybe the thing's too trivial or, or maybe... You know, it's just too small for God to even deal with. But if, if something is causing us anxiety, it's certainly big enough for God to, to be concerned about. A woman once asked G. Campbell Morgan this question. Do you think we should pray about the little things in our lives or just the big things? His answer was this. Madame, can you think of anything in your life That is big to God. (laughs) See, so whatever you're anxious about, bring it to the Lord. In humility, ask him specifically. And then the result of all this, third, is that we're promised God's incomparable peace when we pray. He says, the peace which surpasses all comprehension. In other words, you're going to be in a situation sometimes where you're just so upset and so anxious and you just feel like the whole world is closing in. But you know what? You go to the Lord and you surrender it and you ask God for his peace and and all of a sudden it it floods your soul. And you're, you're, you're walking around like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm about ready to lose my family. I'm about ready to lose my home. I'm about ready to lose my own life. But you know what? I have an inner peace. 
It blows your mind because it surpasses your understanding. But it says there, it shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not some psychobabble piece that you'd get from some coping technique or something like that. What Paul is talking about here is a peace that comes from God, who is never subject to anxiety. Do you understand that? God is never worried. Think about that. God has never even had a moment, a second, a millisecond where he's been anxious about anything. Or he wouldn't be God. He is sovereign. I remember when you're going through Genesis and you're reading the story of Adam and Eve and eating the fruit and well, what's it going to do? What's God going to do? You know, and some people kind of describe the gospel that way. You know, well, Adam and Eve were perfect, but then, you know, they ate the, they ate the fruit and, and they sinned. And God had to do something. So he looked around heaven and he, well, Jesus, you're the one. You go deal with this. And, and they paint this picture like God is somehow reacting I mean, you don't think God knew this was going to happen? It says he planned it. Even the death of his own son was foreordained. So God knows everything about us. And so this peace can really captivate us. It blows our minds, but it can guard our hearts, our minds in Christ. It's a a peace that Jesus promised. And it's not the kind of peace that you get from the world. In other words, it's not humanly explainable. And we've all dealt with people that have been through a horrific thing or maybe an accident or something. And they're just like, wow, they're just so, they're just, God has filled them with peace. I mean, I I think of Yvonne, who just went through brain surgery to remove this tumor. And I talked to her the the night before her surgery and prayed with her. And and after I hung up the phone, I'm like, Wow. That's like a supernatural peace. I mean, I was anxious for her, right? I'm, I'm like trying to console her. And by the time I was off the phone, I mean, she consoled me. I mean, I, I really was really reminded of, hey, wait, this is in God's hands. She knows, she knows the Lord. She's completely trusting in the Lord. That's what we need to be pictures of. This kind of peace stands as a guard over our hearts. In our minds. In Christ Jesus. We have that intimate, permanent union with him. And anxiety must go through Christ Jesus. We have to submit that to him. Well, I think that it's important that as we embrace not just Thanksgiving, but the holiday, Christmas time and all the stuff schedules go out of whack everybody gets crazy we just need to stop and we need to be ask ourselves a simple question you know what do you know god's peace because if you don't know it now you're not going to know it in the midst of chaos for sure you can know god's peace in the midst of situations that the world gets anxious about If you don't have that kind of peace, if you haven't trusted the Lord in that way, I would really ask you this morning to examine your own heart. Only you can do this. Is your faith in him and your focus on his kingdom rather than your own 
selfish pursuits? Have you drawn near to God in reverence? Specific thankful prayers. Can you put the full weight of your life in his hand? Knowing that he cares for you. And that he will bear you up with his indescribable peace. Father, we thank you for this time of year that we can gather with family and friends this coming week. and We look forward to our time together. The food and the fellowship we'll share. But Lord, we pray that we would, we would be mindful that it's a very busy time of year. Very busy time of year. And anxiety can creep in and take over. And so Lord, we, we just want to be thankful to you for the peace that you have provided for us through Christ our Lord. And I pray for any here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Maybe they're hearing the gospel for the first time. And maybe they sense the Lord convicting them of their sin. They have been pursuing their own desires and the Lord wants their pursuit to be about Him and Him alone. I pray for them. I pray that you would open their eyes to their own sinfulness first, that they would recognize that they are a sinner. We're all sinners. And they need to be saved by God's grace because you can't, you can't work your way out of a pit of sin. It just doesn't work. You can come to church till the cows come home. That's not going to affect whether or not you've trusted Christ. You can give away your money to the poor. You can pray 24 hours a day. But have you come to Christ? Have you looked to Christ? Have you come before the Lord and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know that I'm a, a sinner. I've done wrong things. I need your forgiveness. Your word tells me that I come to you, directly to you, and ask you to forgive me and to commit my life to live for you from here on out. I want to do that here this morning. You pray that prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. He will save you. He'll make you that new person he desires you to be. And then you'll know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And for us believers, I just pray as we embrace this holiday time of the year that we would be mindful of our actions and what we're giving folks a picture of. I pray that it's a picture of Christ, a picture of his love, his patience, his kindness, his forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would see something different in us And Lord, that we would be bold with our testimony about Christ. This is the time of year that pretty much everybody celebrates Christmas to some degree or another. And we have the true purpose, the true reason for this time of the year. I pray that we work hard to be creative in how we can most effectively share the gospel during this time with our immediate loved ones, with our friends, with our neighbors that we would see many come to Christ before the conclusion of this year. What a wonderful blessing that would be. We pray for our fellowship time across the way. Pray you'd bless the food of our bodies. We pray for the conversation we'll have. And we just ask, Lord, as we close with a song, that you'd just bless our day. Bless this coming week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song. <laughs>